The Big Ten and the SEC find strength and unity, what that might mean for the new 12-team playoff format, and new Washington head coach Jed Fish erstwhile at Arizona. This is the College Game Day podcast for National Signing Day, Wednesday, February 7th, a day that Pete Thamel doesn't really carry the same juice that it once did, I would say. Sadly, sadly, flips. It, it used to be so filled with drama. It was like the perfect little like college football chestnut present right before the Super Bowl. It was just like it used to just be so well situated here. It used to be so fun. And now sad trombones like it barely exists. Maybe they'll bring it back once uh, once the entire structure of the sport is recalibrated and reimagined. And one guy every day is signing day, Reese. That's <laughs> the problem. <laughs> that, that, well, that's exactly it. And a guy that is in the middle of that right now is new Washington head coach Jed Fish. I'm sure you know about Jed's background. Three years at Arizona, he took the Wildcats from one and eleven in his first season to ten and three this past season. Alamo Bowl win, and once Kalen DeBoer went to Alabama, Fish was quickly hired as the head coach at Washington. Extensive NFL and college assistant experience worked for Bill Belichick, Jim Harbaugh, Steve Spurrier, among others. Standout tennis player growing up who decided he wanted to be a football coach, and it seems that this decision has worked out quite well, and we're pleased to be joined now by the new head coach of the Huskies, Jed Fish. So, Jed, after turning around Arizona as quickly as you did, uh, what was the most attractive thing? What was the most compelling thing that drew you to make the move to Washington? Yeah, uh, well, it was hard. I mean, it was you, you feel so committed uh, to the kids and the relationships you have with them, and you want to make it just you, you want to just see it all the way through every year, and then you realize that there's this opportunity to enter the Big Ten, go play for a team that just competed in the national championship, go be at a place where uh, football. Uh, is the priority go to a place where football becomes uh, a national brand with unlimited uh, resources with the amount of people in Seattle the amount of love for Husky football and we just started thinking about what's the best for long-term sustained success and it felt like Washington had that opportunity. Jed, it's interesting you mentioned the Big Ten pretty early in that answer. Uh, we're sort of at, a, at an interesting inflection point in college athletics right now. We just were writing this week about the SEC and Big Ten's new advisory group, which appears to be like an alignment moving forward. Um, how much of sort of getting to the the better financial side of the river, how much did that factor in? There's myriad way, things that factor into these decisions, right? But how much did getting to that other side factor in when you made this decision? Yeah, well, I mean, winning is expensive. And that's just the bottom line and how it works when you're and you're competing in a situation where you want to be able to play the very best every single week. You get to play Oregon. You get to play USC. You get to play Michigan. You get to play Ohio State. You get to play Penn State. And uh, when you start looking at that, and we go to Iowa, I mean, when you start looking at the games that we have, let alone, you know, the rivalry games that you start saying to yourself, this feels like the NFL. This feels like this opportunity that every week we're going to be in a battle that we have to be at our top. They're going to have to be at their top. And then when you start saying, all right, well, how do we have the best nutrition? How do we make sure that our guys are equipped in the safest, best way? How do we make sure that recruiting wise, we can compete with anybody? And how do we make sure that assistant coach comp, we don't have to have new coaches every year. 
So when you start looking at all those things, uh, the Big Ten and the SEC is what provides that. And um, this is an opportunity out west. we got the number two academic institution here. And then on top of it all, the, the historical data would tell you that when you put 72,000, 75,000 here at Husky Stadium, uh, you got a chance to win a lot of games. You've been pretty straightforward about uh, the power of those two conferences. You've got extensive experience in the NFL. What do you see as the direction in college football? Is this going to morph into whoever is aligned with these two conferences, their players, and the other ones are also Rams or belong in a different division or whatever? What's best for the sport in your judgment? Yeah, you know, I don't know how it's all going to play out. I just know, like, I, I look at a schedule, and if you're a college football junkie or you're someone that loves ball, uh, you're going to start looking at where where are the where are the games that that matter the most? Where are the games that are going to be on television? Uh, who are you going to click into? Are you gonna, if you're an NFL scout, who are you going to watch? Uh, are you going to watch the Washington Michigan game? Are you going to watch the Washington Penn State game in November? Are you going to watch the Washington Oregon game? Or are you going to watch other games that don't have the same uh, historical uh, perspectives and names and recognition and um, and that that's a huge part of it. I think that when you also see the multimedia rights that are going to be coming down the pipe, you got to look to see how can we benefit? How can our players benefit? How can the programs benefit? Um, and then, you know, those conferences right now have that mentality. They have that mentality of we're going to try to do everything we can with the, what is it, 18 and 16, the 34 mm-hmm. teams that are involved here um, to make it feel feel like, hey, this this competitive nature of these two conferences is going to be pretty incredible and it's what you know it's what you want to be a part of if you're a player and it's what you want to be a part of if you're a coach so jed i did a quick counting and i went to syracuse so math is not a strong point but i have you at 16 different jobs uh before washington so to to take things out of the existential of uh of the big picture of sport and light things up a little bit uh how much of a ninja is amber fish at moving Right and I know Seattle's been a stop before, uh, though in the NFL side of it. Just I, I would imagine there's like it's like pack and play. You just like fold it up and go at this point. I mean, are you counting like me lifeguarding in a town pool? Sixteen jobs. <laughs> I went to. That sounds like a lot, but we won't get into the details here. We will not get into the weeds. I got the New Jersey Red Dogs on there. Come oh, on, you can't you can't now. discount All the right. Red Dogs. All right, we're counting. Uh, we should only count when I got married. So it's only been I think fourteen. But oh, okay. uh, Amber Fish is, uh, she's elite. She's elite. She is, uh, she's an A plus in every category. She loves our players. I'll tell you the hardest thing for Amber right now is not picking up and moving because we always believe like our culture comes with us. Like our kids come with us. Our, our, I mean, Ashley and Kendall, my 14 year old and my 12 year old, like the rules aren't going to change at our house just because we're in a new house. You know, the life is not going to change. They're going to have mom and dad there. They're going to be around football. But what's so sad for Amber is uh, her investment in the kids. And when it's like feeling as if you're you're no longer going to see them as much. And I think it's a real problem with the NCAA that we can't, like, you can't talk to the kids that you had at your house every weekend. You can't see that, you know, once you leave a job, if you – God forbid, say, I love you, or I hope the best for you. It becomes like this question on tampering. And um, we got to get rid of that because these kids have built these huge relationships with families. And where Amber's so excited about joining us, you know, about being here in Seattle with our kids, 
Um, she's also really sad that she's leaving uh, some of the players that we were so tight with. Well, I, I want to delve in, into your path here because I think it's pretty fascinating, but I feel compelled to ask about that. What is What was it like for you leaving when you had to, when you communicated however that went with your Arizona players? What is that like? And what is, you say the NCAA has to get rid of it. How? What's the best method? What are best practices for, for this? Which the players, some of the players you have at Washington feel the same way about Kalen DeBoer leaving immediately in the aftermath of playing for the national championship. Oh, there, there's no question they feel that way. Um, and I understand it. You know, I understand why they feel that way. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it's an extremely hard day. Uh, we make a decision and the decision that we made, we felt, uh, we brought 21 members of our staff with us and we felt like we were able to reward every member of our staff with this opportunity, uh, financially be able to take care of their families differently. And, um, obviously some of the football that we could provide them for. But, you know, you're not allowed to really, I mean, I was given five minutes to talk to the team and, you know, you go in there and you, you can't talk about if you want to join, you can't talk about if you, anything about the future, you can only talk about that moment in time. You can only say, you know, I love you. I appreciate you. And they're 18 to 22. And then you have to walk out the door. I went out the back door, went downstairs and left. And, um, and then I have to send a text anytime I got a player that called me and said, the NCAA does not allow me to contact you unless you're in the portal. I appreciate the text. And yeah, you can get texts this long of coach, how appreciative I am of you or how did this happen? And you can't really share anything. Um, I don't know the right solution, but I know that these are 18 to 22 year old kids that you, you build this relationship with. And then when you make a decision, You've got to under like not everybody needs to be thinking that every time you contact someone, it's for bad intentions. Sometimes it's just because you appreciate them and love them and want the best for them. But, uh, you know, we got to play by the rules right now. And the rules say no communication. So it's no communication. What, what was your reaction to some of the acrimonious fallout, not necessarily with the players, but with the administration, uh, the removal of the athletic director at Arizona? What was your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's disappointing in so many ways because I think Arizona was such a special place and is such a special place. And Dave Hickey was an amazing athletic director for me. And the three years that I was worked with Dave hand in hand, our partnership was fantastic. He treated our program incredibly well. And uh, it was unfortunate that about a week later, you know, um, he's no longer there. But what Dave did for Arizona football – I mean, let's not forget, we got there, we were on a 12-game losing streak, and we left there on a seven-game winning streak. And uh, we were, I mean, we were 130th probably in power rankings in 2021, and we were probably, I don't know, I finished, we finished 11th in the country in 2023. Now the team's not the same uh, moving forward. You know, obviously, Jacob Cowling and Tanner McLaughlin and Mike Wiley, um, those guys made huge impacts. Jordan Morgan's an elite player, Martell Irby. We were going to have our work cut out for us. Um, you start naming all the guys that um, aren't, aren't going to be there. But uh, it was certainly an uh, incredible opportunity to work with Dave, and Dave did an amazing job. Well, Ted, let's, uh, let, let's dive into this path a little bit, um, and I'm going to start in New, in New Jersey. Uh, so do you identify with Springsteen or Bon Jovi? <laughs> bon Jovi. Okay. All Living right. on a prayer, man. 
All right. All right. We're going to hear that in Husky Stadium. Are you going to start changing the set list there? <laughs> we'll see. I got to I got to get to the bottom of some of this stuff. I got to learn our players first before I learn our <laughs> set list though. No. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's fair. Now you grew you grew up playing tennis. You were a standout tennis player, and you decided to go to Florida. How many consecutive days did you actually leave handwritten notes on Steve Spurrier's windshields? Yeah. How yeah, many? A, how many consecutive days? I don't know. I think it's like four thirty six or something like that. It was over a year, um, and they weren't all handwritten notes. There was it was a way to contact him in a million different ways. And it was a letter, a note, a postcard, a, a book, a manual. Uh, you, you think about it. It was any way possible to try to get his attention, to have an opportunity uh, to go work for him. If somebody tried that in 2024, they'd be arrested, you know, on the <laughs> 428 days earlier. But, um, you know, we finally got, and I don't even know how I got in there. It was like, I tried to be an equipment manager. I tried to be a, there were no real students. I tried to be a student manager. I tried to be a recruiting assistant, you know, and the programs were so small back then. I mean, you had yeah. one offensive GA, one defensive GA. I mean, Sammy McCorkle, the head coach at Dartmouth was the defensive GA. Noah Brindice was the offensive GA. And that was it. That was it. Buddy Tevens was the one that finally allowed me in. And uh, that's why I had BT on my visor all year after he passed because when it was all said and done, Buddy was the guy that that him and Dwayne Dixon were the two guys that finally said, yeah, if you come in at like the nine o'clock hour, Coach Burrier won't be around and you can start doing work. And then as I started, all right, you did a good job. I could come in at eight. Then you come in at seven. And then finally they allowed me to, to work through this process. But uh, I went to Florida for one reason. I went to Florida to coach football. And um, my dad said to me, you know, what do you want to do for a living? And once we kind of got over the fact that I told him I was going to be a football coach, uh, his answer was, well, you might as well go to a place that has the best football coach in the country. And that was Florida. Howie Roseman is part of your Florida story. Now, if I understand, and I think I've asked you this somewhere over the years, Jed, you guys weren't like four-year roommates, but you like intersected for a summer. Is that is that is that yeah. my memory's right there? Yeah, we lived together for a year, for a, a, a fall, summer, uh, spring. Uh, in the uh, sophomore, my my uh, second part of my freshman year, first part of my sophomore year, his second part of his sophomore year, first part of his junior year, um, and we were we were in the same apartment complex. We lived next door to each other though for another year or two after that um, in the same apartment. He, he and I are very close. We didn't know each other prior to moving uh, in together. We um, but we were fraternity brothers. So what happened was I joined the fraternity that he was at. He's one year older than I am. And then um, he was looking for a roommate because his roommate went abroad. And uh, so we moved in there and then obviously have become extremely close since and have remained a great, a great friend, great ally. And he was one of the two people that I called uh, when I had about two hours to make this decision to come here or not. He was a, uh, uh, he was one of the two that, that was involved in this decision. 
Didn't you do something with Spurrier's ball plays too? Did you laminate them or put them into a computer? What did you – is that – do I recall that story? How did I start? I, I was yeah. the first person to make the playbook on the computer. So all of his playbook was handwritten. And the my goal was to – how do you make an impact back in the day when, you know, you don't really – he doesn't know you. So what I what Coach Stevens and I did – and. We bought this program called Playmaker Pro for $95 and we drew the playbook or I drew the playbook and um, we gave it to him. And he kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's six nights. Okay. <laughs> and I uh, looked at it and I don't know if it went any further than that, but everyone, we started using the playbook and uh, we gave all the players the pass game playbook, which was typed up for the first time on the computer. And then I was the first person to ever type a script. Uh, so he would walk out of the practice for the first time when we did blitzes was the only time he scripted practice. And that was the only thing that we, uh, we gave him. So that was kind of my impact that I made for coach Burrier, but, uh, the impact he made for me was, uh, a lot greater. Your head coaching style obviously becomes a, a medley of people you've worked for. And I'm just going to spit off the top of my head from Bill Belichick to Sean McVay to Jim Harbaugh to Jim Mora. Um, and there's many more NFL, uh, Gus Bradley, I think. Like, there's plenty I'm missing, too. Just how do you how do you blend with those 14 stops? Uh, how do you blend all of that together, Jed? And how did you sort of see that manifest itself at, at Arizona? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I really would say that it started with my time um, with Coach Spurrier, and I never nodded. I never didn't call plays. So the first thing I was going to do, no matter if I was a if I was a head coach, I was I was going to run the offense because I just believed in that. Coach Spurrier did it, and then I had a chance to be with Coach Billick and Coach Shanahan. And uh, the idea, you know, that's kind of what I loved. So when I was in Arizona, when I was uh, obviously ten years as an offensive coordinator before that. I wasn't going to give up calling plays. I'll call the plays here at Washington the same way as we did at Arizona. Um, when it comes down to how we do it, I think our offense is very similar to what Coach McVay uh, does in L.A. And, um, and then also probably we both learned from Coach Shanahan. Uh, him at Washington, me at Denver, but it was still, you know, Mike's offense. And then when it comes to kind of how we run our program, on the practice field, it's probably very similar to Coach Belichick. Uh, that's why I think I was able to get Steve to come here as our defensive coordinator because we are going to have tough practices, physical practices. We are going to talk about fundamentals and basic football as much as possible and try to develop guys from the draft, you know, or in our case, from signing day, not from free agency or not from the transfer portal. So um, really, we spend a lot of time with the basics, a lot of time with the young guys and really try to teach blocking and tackling. So that's kind of, I think, the gamut of guys that I work for and then hiring Coach Carroll's son, Brennan. Brennan and I have coached together now for seven years, six wow. years, two years at University of Miami, then three years at Arizona and now here. And Brennan's my most trusted guy and he's our offensive line coach, offensive coordinator. And uh, he brings that energy that Pete brought. And uh, he reminds me to have fun and how great this is and, you know, keeps it upbeat and alive. And and really his connection with the kids is amazing. So I think altogether we've just put together a staff at Washington that I'm really proud of. Well, Reese is the one who tells me to have fun, by the way. <laughs> I don't know do that. It, it's, uh, it's really an inter- interesting thing because those those talks, you've got football royalty on your on your staff. What were those – 
What were those conversations like? I'm thinking particularly with Steve Belichick, who's had success as a defensive coordinator in the NFL. Yet, um, this is an opportunity in some ways for him to sort of branch out on his own. And while, you know, his, his dad's a legend, the greatest NFL coach of all time, perhaps, and, you know, general manager too. Yet, this is an opportunity for Steve to make his own mark in some ways, I would think. Was that attractive to him? Yeah, it was, you know, it was one of those weird deals that, uh, you know, there was always this question, like, what are you going to do with your defensive coordinator? And, you know, in my mind, when the when the season ended, uh, our defensive coordinator went to Texas when we were at Arizona. And I, I didn't make a move yet because I really wanted to see what the NFL landscape was going to look like. And, I, you know, if you look at Jesse Minter at Michigan, Mike McDonald at Michigan before that, when you look at Danton Lynn at UCLA, when you look at Al Golden at Notre Dame, you know, these offensive, I mean, these defensive coordinators are really in the top eight um, when you look at in total defense, and they all came from the NFL. And I'm like, that's what I want to do this next go around. Um, I didn't think it was going to happen in Washington. I thought it was going to happen in Arizona. And then when Washington happened, uh, I think Steve was finishing up in Atlanta, not sure if his dad was going to get the job or not with the Falcons. And um, I reached out to him, and we were, were good friends, and we were together in New England in 2020. And I said, give this a chance. Come out here. Come check us out. This is an opportunity uh, for you to run it yourself um, and really put your stamp. You've called it for four years. Now you get to put your stamp on it. And um, I had him out here. And then him and Brennan went out for lunch. And they talked, just the two of them, of the, the very small fraternity that they're in, right? Uh, you know, two iconic head coaches' sons that are both in coaching. And what caused Brennan to leave Seattle to come to Arizona uh, four years ago when he was working for his dad and now the opportunity for Steve to be with us. And uh, it happened to be that they're both on the same staff. They're both the coordinators, which is great, but it certainly is royalty. Uh, we don't take it lightly. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to all the visits from um, both the head coaches. The good news for me is they're both defensive coaches. So <laughs> over there. Uh, and then, uh, but they're, they're amazing. And I want them to be a part of this program. And my hope is that both Pete and Bill are here in Seattle a lot and that they're very much involved in Husky football. Let me ask you an inside football question here because you brought up a really interesting point about Al Golden, the two Michigan DCs, uh, the success NFL guys have had coming down recently. Now, they'll have really good players, right? They didn't go to UTEP and lead the nation in defense. But why, why do you think the NFL defensive schemes in the in the last couple of years have been so successful, Jed? Yeah, you know, and I think uh, what Danton Lynn did at UCLA and the jump that they made was, was um, really significant. Um, I, I, and I think um, it is good players. It's always going to be good players, though, right? Like, no matter what happens, if you don't have good players, none of it matters. Um, it's a player run, everything. But uh, I would say that there are some intricacies in scheme that uh, attacking protections is something that you live and die through in the NFL. And you've spent hours upon hours upon hours for years not recruiting and just watching tape. And now you have this opportunity to just pop yourself into a college program. And yes, you probably haven't had the experience recruiting as you used to have, but you've spent, you've, you've just lodged so many hours uh, of film study and understanding what you're going to get on offense and how to attack it. That I think there's a, a, a big advantage. And then the recruiting advantage comes from not, you know, your relationships with street agents or with Twitter or with Instagram, 
your your recruiting advantage comes from I just got done coaching the best in the world. I here's what Devin McCourty said about me. Here's what he thinks about the way I coach safeties. Here's what he thinks the way um, we prepared our team. Now, how would you not want to play here? So I think it's just a different way to recruit. But in the same regard, I think schematically, there's just a great advantage. What would you say along those lines is the difference in what an NFL player can handle from a scheme standpoint, from a game plan changing week to week standpoint, as opposed to what a college player. I mean, I know there's going to be some, there's going to be a range in the college players, older guys, guys who might have higher football IQs or whatever. Generally speaking, what's the, what's the difference in what a pro player can handle and what a college player can handle? Yeah, well, you know, I would say we run an NFL offense here. Um, we, we, we don't shy away from the verbiage. If Sean walked on our practice field, he'd be able to call 75% of the plays and the guys would be able to execute them uh, with his exact verbiage that we used in LA. So uh, I would say that we undervalue what they know or what they can learn. The more you give them, the more they learn. The less you give them, the more we say they can't learn. So our philosophy is we coach them um, in the same regard if we were going to take on a job in the NFL this year or next year. Um, and, you know, that's our mentality. And we're going to try to – we understand there's some, there's some limitations based on signaling. But nowadays, I think next year we're going to be able to have coach the quarterback communicator. Um, there's That'd make my job a lot easier, by the way, because I'm really sick of writing about <laughs> sign stealing. So uh, let Tony Petiti know I'm, if, I'm, I, there's, a, if there's you, an advocate. <laughs> if uh, if it doesn't happen, there's a chap named Stallions who's looking for. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you know. I think you got to do it. I, I just I, I just believe in the more you can get these guys ready for the league. That's our responsibility. That's our job. That's our. That's what I want to do. I want to get there ready for life after football. And if you're going to come to Washington, your expectation is life after football is going to be in the NFL. We got 12 guys invited to the combine this year. And when I say we, I mean Washington. I wasn't here for that. Um, at Arizona, we have, uh, I think, four guys uh, that are invited to the combine this year that they haven't had invited in five years. So you've got to try to be able to develop them and you've got to try to be able to put yourself in a position to make sure that you can, uh, can find a way to, you know, help them in every way possible to be successful. Let me ask you this, Jed. You mentioned 12 guys going to combine. That's a, that's an outlandish number for, for, for any program. Um, I would think the biggest bold-faced name on your roster is Will Rogers, who wasn't there before. Um, you probably haven't had a ton of time to, like, study what he did at Mississippi State in 2021 or whatever in, in going forward here. But, and, and again, you've probably seen him run around in workouts and shorts. So I, I certainly think there's a, there's probably a limited purview. But just w- what of you know of him and have seen of him do you think he can be and how do you think he can thrive and what you run? Well, I saw him live twice because we played him. And remember, we played Mississippi State uh, both in Tucson in 22 – and then in uh, Starkville in 23. So I was able to see him live. I know what his skills are. Um, they beat us both times, one in overtime. Uh, it was 24 all, and they beat it. And they kind of was in a quarterback rotation like this past season. The year before, they handled it pretty well. And, you know, in Coach Leach's system. Uh, I mean, anyone that's come throwing the ball 1,900 times in the SEC and 12,000 yards in the SEC. 
has certainly uh, the ability to lead any team in the country. Uh, it's our job now, uh, Jimmy Doherty's our quarterback coach and myself, to get him uh, more comfortable playing in a pro-type system and more comfortable being under center and using the play-action game to his advantage, more comfortable uh, utilizing all the different tempos and not just kind of living in one tempo, more comfortable using verbiage that he has never used before. Uh, so he seems to be a football junkie. I see him up here constantly watching tape. He's watching a lot of Arizona film right now. And uh, he's the type of kid that just wants to learn and wants to get better. He takes a 6 a.m. lift group every morning because he wants to be the first guy here. So all those things are really uh, great benefits to, to us having him for this year. What constitutes success in your first year at Washington? You know, it, it's so interesting. I mean, they have two returning starters out of 22 players. And, uh, which, you know, which is wild to say the least. And, um, a lot of guys that are coming here, um, are coming here with an expectation to start, uh, that are transferring in a lot of young guys that were here, couldn't wait for their opportunity. And now they have it. So their mind is they're going to start. So I think competition is going to be incredible here, uh, in the spring and in the fall to try to get on the field. We better compete our tails off in every game. And the 60 minutes of play every single week, we better be a type of team that nobody wants to play. We better play our um, as hard as we possibly can play every snap. And then how the final score comes out, I mean, I don't know. I don't know anybody on our team right, right now. So I would expect us to be competitive. I would expect us to try to be one of the top teams in the country. I would expect us to try to be a part of every uh, conversation that you guys have on Saturday mornings. But I know that we got a lot of work to do right now. When you have 20 new starters and you have a five new offensive linemen, um, you have a new quarterback, you have a new running back. Um, I don't know. You have 21 new staff members. Um, you know, I, I do feel good about what the process will look like and what the outcomes will look like for sustained success. I think this year we'll see how good we can get. Let, let me wrap with this, uh, unless Reese wants to pass on some uh, tips on catching salmon, which he uh, he attempted to do on the game day. Set attempted. I've, I'm, I've made I've been targeted twice, two receptions. OK. okay. Right. What do you think about the turnover salmon? Like if we get it to rather than the turnover sword <laughs> that we have, we're thinking about flipping a salmon into the student section. Do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea? I think you'll get some calls from PETA, which game day I, I, I've heard has gotten in the past. I think. I think it's a fabulous idea. I'm not sure how it'll smell by the fourth quarter, but it's, uh, I think it's a great idea. The Washington students probably weren't smelling a lot, at least the day I was there for the Oregon game. They seemed to be above a lot of sensories. So this is true. Uh, Go ahead. What was that's your last what it does. So this is my last question. Uh, Washington, two starters back. I believe Michigan loses 17 starters. I believe Alabama lost a bunch, right? Um the post-spring portal, in my estimation, is going to be as active as ever because those three programs obviously are fresh off some high-end success, and, and they're all very motivated as athletic departments and staffs to continue that success. What do you think this post-spring portal will be like for trying to fill in some of the holes at your place and other places? I think it'll be very, very busy. If you think about it, there was 129 teams that were able to poach for uh, you know, when you look at, I guess, what, San Jose State, Boston College, Arizona, Michigan, Washington, uh, 
I guess those are the ones, right, in Alabama, mm-hmm. so poach six. Uh, now you've got 130 teams or so and really whatever, 60 teams or 40 teams, whatever they might be, that, you know, there's going to be a lot of good players in that portal, really good players in that portal that um, are going to want to come play for places like Washington and Michigan and Alabama. And uh, we would expect um, some great players to want to join us. Uh, they certainly can see opportunity there. And if they see opportunity and um, be able to help bring us back to the championship level, we got a 12-team CFP coming up. And uh, I think all of that's going to play to the advantage of, of some of our programs. I know that we promised a half an hour, but given the fact that I wouldn't be able to live with myself if we didn't broach this subject and the fact that this is probably uh, a characteristic that's going to make you a formidable recruiter, both at the high school level and within the portal. Um, tell me about your relentless pursuit of getting into the OJ trial. <laughs> I mean, have you been talking to Rick Neuheisel? Because this is a Neuheisel question. <laughs> I've never been on a show that the OJ trial hasn't come into play. It, I mean, it's a fascinating thing, though, Jed. I mean... How, how did you become so fascinated? With, I mean, we were all fascinated to some degree, but not I'll many of us went out there and said, I'm going to the trial. I'll give you the cliff note version of it, okay? Okay, so all right. I was in college. I was a sophomore in college. I was a freshman in college. And um, it, the, the chase happened at a graduation party my senior year in high school. I then go to the trial. And my goal, if I wasn't, I said this to Robert Shapiro uh, a couple of years ago, he and I went out for lunch and I said, I was either going to be you or Steve Spurrier. <laughs> I did choose Steve Spurrier, but if you want to choose to pick up the bill for lunch today, that would be perfect. Uh, <laughs> but uh, those were, that was kind of in my mind what it was going to be. And um, so as I was, my dad was a lawyer, my brother was a lawyer. So I go to the trial. I, I just said to my dad in the summertime, I go, dad, I got to get out of this trial. I'm watching it every day. I'm, I, I can't get enough of this thing, uh, of the criminal defense attorney side of this whole deal. Uh, I'm like, if I'm going to do it, that's who I'm going to be. I'm going to be Bob Shapiro. And um, I wound up um, going out there by myself. My high school best friend's sister was living out there. She let me crash at her place. I showed up to the courtroom at four in the morning the next day, suit and tie on and nothing, <laughs> nothing. They wouldn't let me in. It was, uh, they let seven people in, tried to sneak my way in, met a bunch of family members, nothing happened. Next day, tried it again, nothing. And then I, uh, I finally, uh, that next Monday morning, I had a suit and tie on and I see a car pull up and it's, like a Lexus and a Rolls Royce and another fancy car. And it was like Shapiro and Johnny Cochran and Effley Bailey. And I'm in a suit and tie and they're in a suit and tie. And I'm like, ah, screw it. So they walk in and I just kind of joined. I joined the walk and uh, the elevator door closed. And it was like Kardashian, Cochran, Shapiro, Fish, Barry Sheck. <laughs> and they currently said, who are you? And I'm like, ah, Jed Fish, uh, criminology major at University of Florida. Uh, and they said, just come on in with us. So I wound up sitting in uh, the front row of some sock evidence deal. It was crazy. I hear coaches all the time talk about being relentless, relentless, relentless. It's, their, it's one of their favorite words. Between the notes on Spurrier's windshield and getting into the OJ trial, and you said it was just evidence, so you didn't see the whole glove thing, right? It wasn't no, I wasn't that there for the glove. I only had one okay. day there. I had to get back okay. to my lifeguarding job that yeah. Pete wanted to reference in the early, <laughs> uh, the early conversation. 
Well, recruits don't have a chance with you because you're going to get them one way or another eventually. So, Jed, what a pleasure. Uh, thanks for thanks for spending time with us. Wish you all the luck in the world at, at Washington. And, and maybe once you find a place, you might be riding a boat to work. A lot of your predecessors have done that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Jed. Man, that was great. I wish every coach like ran around and tried to get in the OJ trial and stuff. A lot of fun things to talk about. Look forward to seeing Jed's team play. And it's just over 200 or so days away until we get back at it. Pete, you've been hard at work. Uh, Jed touched on this a little bit in our conversation with him about this notion of an AFC-NFC type venture in college football. And he was pretty blunt. Yeah, I, I mean, you know what? I think at this point you might as well be. I mean, with sure. the Big Ten and the SEC uh, now collaborating, uh, I thought you. I think you had a pretty funny line in your piece that it, it might be an alliance, but please do not call it the alliance with capital letters on e- each side. After it was, uh, what what did you say? Rightly mocked, which was which was yes. true. It was like a, I called it the Seinfeld alliance yeah. uh, when it happened. It was the alliance <laughs> about nothing. Yeah. <laughs> It reminded me, I don't know why it like reminded me of like some bad superheroes, like a Super Friends episode, but I digress from that. This, however, probably is actual power players. And instead of forming oh, yeah. some fake alliance, what they're doing is like, okay, how do we get, not only get control of this, but how do we maximize this from an economic standpoint, from a competitive standpoint? Um, what are you making of, of this unity uh, between the Big Ten and the SEC and Greg Sankey and Tony Petiti? I think it, it it smacks of wanting to control your own destiny, Reese, right? Like they've seen transformation committees, committees on this, committees on that, talks on this. You see, you hear about venture capital coming in. We wrote a story two weeks ago where the, the vultures are circling a little bit. They see the inefficiencies in college sports. And I think Greg Sankey and Tony Petiti, uh, who are very close over Petiti's what now eleven months uh, since getting hired at the uh, at the Big Ten, maybe ten, um, and they've said let's control our own destiny. Let's not have South Alabama dictate what Alabama does. Let's not have Eastern Michigan dictate what Michigan does. Let's let's pu- let's pull together and push forward here because the answer still likely lies, um, <coughs> Reese, for those leagues within the conference setup still. If you go back and, and I read, uh, I didn't read all 55 pages of it, but I read the Supreme Court opinion um, from, uh, from, from two years ago from the Alston case. And the word conferences comes up in, in, in multiple, multiple, multiple places. And the conferences are not is subject to as many restrictions as, as the NCAA is. So I think using that as a little bit of cover they're going to to link forward and go ahead. And the path is through settlement and revenue share. So mm-hmm. when this happened, they 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 did all the, you know, uh, jargon gumbo, right, of uh, clear-eyed strategy, da 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 But the, the reality, when I made calls for a couple of days here, was that that House versus the NCA case, which is a swimmer from Arizona State with billions on the line, mm-hmm. um, is sort of ripe to be settled this spring if it's going to be settled. All five power conferences are defendants. I don't know where the Pac-12 stands on that if it disappears. But um, So if they can push forward and get the money to settle through a, a court order, they could also potentially, and this is all hypothetical still, and there's a lot of legal hoops, they could potentially set up and say, this is what revenue share looks like going forward. We're going to pay you for past NIL damages, but now we're going to give athletes, and I'm making this up, 22%, 12%, 
whatever mm-hmm. it is, you are going to get a cut of the television revenue. You are going to be brought in. And then they go to Congress and they say, okay, we've done our part to, to, to link everything in and, and likely appease some people. We don't want you to save us, but can you help us with, a, with an exemption for antitrust? So that is a possible path forward. Am I sitting here and saying it's going to happen? I don't know, Reese. Like pro- probably not, right? Because there's a there's hundreds of paths being theorized. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's noteworthy that those two leagues appear motivated to attempt to make this a path. You know, a couple of a couple of things come to mind. One was people listen to this podcast for us to talk about football and, and offensive line experience, which didn't necessarily work out that well last year, at least in parts. But these things are important. And the the case that you mentioned, the House case, I was with an athletic director the night that uh, that became class action. And he, mm. he's like, dude, this could be billions. This is huge. So this is yeah. worth paying attention to for the rank and file fans because this is going to have – I'm not saying you have to delve into all the briefs, but this is worth paying attention to because it might impact – your favorite sport and how it is structured and how it's organized and who's in charge and and really how healthy the future of it will be. This case will have a lot to do with it. The other thing you brought up uh, was this idea of private equity, which has most notably been uh, surrounding Florida State and perhaps some others that I'm mm-hmm. not aware of. But it was it was uh, brought up in a conversation I was having last week that said that all sounds well and good because people say, hey, they've got a lot of money. Let's get the private equity people in here and we'll have money and private equity. That's the answer. The problem becomes is at some point the private equity people want to make money. And if they don't make money or don't make it as quickly or aren't repaid as quickly as they would like to be, then they're going to say, hey, guess what? We're in control of how you spend your money and you're not or more more precisely, the money that we loaned you, you know, or the money that we yeah. invested with you. And so now you're going to make this move and that move and cut this program and that program and not pay this guy that. And we're going to make this move here. And now you're not running your own program. That might is probably a somewhat oversimplification and it might even be somewhat hyperbolic, but I don't really think so. Because when people start pouring money into things, they want some control. And it's also one of the issues that will eventually come up with these collectives. I'm not saying they're bad. They're great. But at some point, if people are pouring their money into something, they want some say in how things are structured. So, you know, all, all these things are, are fascinating, uh, not nearly as, as interesting or entertaining necessarily as what happens on the field and what players are going where and all the things that we do as we, that we love. But these are factors that are going to impact things over the next few years as we, you know, as we sort out the playoff television contract and the format and all of that. What impact do you think the Big Ten SEC um, strength and unity, I guess, working together will you have? You can't call it a union because then, there, yeah. then there's like potential actual unions. Involved yeah, right. In yeah, case. So yeah. I called it like an arm linking. I was like going to the source because when you get alliance out of the way from a word perspective, there's yeah. not a lot of other linking uh, words that can be used. Well, okay. I want to get back quickly because we don't want to dwell on this, but I do want to get back quickly to the Dartmouth players unionizing. But 12-team format, Five and seven seems to be where they will eventually, eventually will land. But will that be good enough for the for the superpowers for the Big Ten and the SEC? 
Well, I think we'll end up there for the next two years. And I think it was not a coincidence that this um, alliance, right? Uh, th- this Big Ten SEC advisory cooperation was, cooperation was announced yeah. on a Friday and everybody flew to Dallas on Sunday and Monday for CFP meetings. Because I mm-hmm. think there is some stuff in the CFP, including the PAC-2 sort of do- going on a little power surge, including the the payment of SMU, where these these... Greg Sankey and Tony Petiti were like, enough of this nonsense. All right. Like this is, mm-hmm. and again, I'm not quoting them. I want to be clear about that. But like, to me, the actions dictate, like, we are going to control the destiny here. We are not going to let some of these uh, smaller mouths um, and smaller budgets and smaller brands determine the future and the outcome. So, um, and Heather Dennis did a good story on this over the weekend, Reese. Mm-hmm. Like, I think CFP governance is a huge issue right now. Like, Going forward, I'd be skeptical once we go into the next iteration of this thing, the next contract of the thing, if you have to be unanimous and the Sun Belt has the same vote as the SEC or the MAC and the Big Ten, whatever, right? Like, I feel like the governance model is going to shift to be weighted proportionally. Um, and then, you know, some people would theorize that it's better for the SEC if you don't have any automatic bids. If you mm-hmm. just say, hey, best 12, come on in. If Boise's number 11 one year, great. If you're not, great. Um, and you know, there's been some notion that like, oh, do they want more automatic bids? And I think like all they want is more bids. And so mm-hmm. they they have to sit back and figure out, do we try to get X amount of automatic bids or do we do we push forward with that? And then the other big looming issue here, and we've talked about this a bunch on the pod and we've sort of gently mocked it, is conference championship games. They are going to become obsolete with a playoff or somewhat irrelevant with a playoff. Now, some years they will be, some years they won't be, but they are not going to carry the same juice. You're going to have coaches who don't play their starters in that. Like that, those are real issues that are going to come up. And can they, can they address that ahead of time? Or do we have to have it? Do they have to fall on their face and learn their lesson that way? Um, so anyway, that's a little bit, a little bit scrambled here, but I think these are the types of issues that those two leagues are going to be aligned on because they're sitting in similar chairs. It, the Dartmouth basketball players who got the right to uh, join the union. Now, look, my son was an Ivy League athlete. It's a wonderful experience, but there's awesome. there's, there's not you know there aren't athletic scholarships. Uh, in fact, there are no at least at Princeton. I know there are no merit scholarships of any kind. Uh, you wow. know, they, they, you, you, there are no scholarships now. What, what the secret is, and I'm overly simplifying this too. The secret is if you can get into school, they make it not financially prohibitive based on your economic situation, uh, you know, for any student, that's not, that's not just athletes. So it, it's a wonderful experience, but I wouldn't say it is a huge revenue driver. Uh, so, so in, in your judgment from what you've ascertained from this, are the Dartmouth basketball players just seeking to be, uh, trailblazers and pioneers, or is there something, uh, something else afoot that they have been limited in some way that they, that they feel is unfair? Yeah. Well, if there's a, if there is a non-revenue sport, it's Dartmouth basketball, right? Like has Dartmouth ever made the NCAA tournament? I don't think they've made it. They've, they haven't made it in my lifetime. I I don't recall. I'm sure they, I would imagine they have like maybe back in the thirties or, you know, they started in 39, thirties or forties. Maybe they made it a year, but I I don't know that. But they're, they're not like, they're not looking for a, a piece of the pie here. And if you, if you saw the statement that the players made, they were, oh, wow, look at us, Reese. They made the final four in 1942 and 44. 
Um, they were oh, the runner-up in, uh, in, in both those years. So, yes, uh, they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven NCAA tournament appearances, none since 59. So to all the big green and the tall green that uh, generations passed <laughs> that uh, feel slighted, I want to make sure you get your uh, you, you get your due. But the, 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 the quote from the players, and I'm, uh, I'm just saying this generally, I'm not actually reading it, is uh, I'm paraphrasing. That's what I was looking for. Was basically like we look forward to see the chaos we've created. Now that's I'm I'm, I'm juicing that up a little bit, but we look yeah. forward to see how this impacts college sports. And mm-hmm. so um, that to me was a window into what their uh, what their motives were. Now I see the that the same way I see the house case, the same way I see other like these are you know like the smoke that used to be on the horizon is now right in front of the camp here for college sports and so this is a this is another motivator to find a solution for leaders and so and i think even in the the big 10 sec advisory thing pending lawsuits is a uh, you know is one of the things that's that's noted amid the jargon gumbo and i do feel like there are there are legal situations they are those leagues are sick of random judges Telling them how they should run their, you know, billion dollar industry, and I don't blame them, right? Like, like, like we we need some leadership if we're not getting it from Indianapolis. And Charlie Baker has tried, although that went over pretty flat with those two leagues. His his D one uh, his D one sort of uh, hypothetical that he threw out at the uh, at the NSA convention. Um, yeah, so I just think that I I look at that is that will be appealed and it will take years before it actually happens. So I don't think like. Everyone's going to be a union tomorrow. Like we're going to see unions at right. the NSA tournament this year in March. But I think that could potentially happen, and that's going to motivate people around college athletics to to control their own destiny and find solutions to avoid that from happening. Because remember the it, the Northwestern thing. If I have this right, and I reread it, you know, in some of this Dartmouth stuff, like it passed mm. regionally, then it got rejected, and it just kind of like fizzled. Uh, it kind of fizzled out. I've said that I thought collective bargaining was the only path forward, which almost by definition means unionizing. Certainly not against that. But I guess I, as I thought about Dartmouth's uh, role in this, I couldn't help but think of one of the great philosophers of our time and the words that he had, um, you know, speaking of, of young men in this situation. He's been misunderstood. It's a comfort to know his intentions are good. And he sits in a room with a lock on the door with his maps and his medals laid out on the floor. And he likes to be known as the angry young man. And there's always a place for the angry young man with his fist in the air and his head in the sand. He's never been able to learn from mistakes. So he can't understand why his heart always breaks. But maybe this time, maybe this time, the angry young men will lead the way. And Lift us from the realm of ignorance into the realm of understanding and uh, get everybody their fair share of the vast revenue. That philosopher, by the way, was none other than William Joel. I even caught that pop culture Did reference. Did I was you? a little disappointed Jed was a Bon Jovi guy. I'm a big Springsteen guy. So oh, yeah? Little, little, little bummed. Yeah, I've seen Springsteen like 30 times. Yeah. Like every other white male sports writer in his 40s, it's, I'm sort of like have to like enjoy Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, now, you know I really enjoy Bruce Springsteen, and this is going to be blasphemous, I know, to some. I don't quite, I, and I really enjoy his music. I don't quite understand the um, the cult, the near yes, the cult, the near reverence for it. He, he's a brilliant performer. I mean, there, there nobody questions that. Um, I, I have a good good friend um, that that is well known in the sports industry, Nick Khan. Uh, Nick Khan and I often. Uh, 
often sort of exaggerate and mock Tom Rinaldi, who is a near near Springsteen cultish, and you know we we exaggerate and make fun and that. I, That's I good think to know about Tom. I, Tom and I could yeah, go in a in, yeah. a in a dark room and have long conversations. Yeah, I think he's. I think I think Springsteen's great. I really enjoy his music. I don't understand the the near cultish devotion to it though to- totally fair uh my yeah. wife i listen to e street radio on sirius quite a bit in the car my wife calls it old man radio so that's <laughs> what, <laughs> like, what, what is an old man radio again it's like what, <laughs> what is uh what does kate prefer she loves stevie nicks i saw her in concert once i have i have not seen her kate's seen her a bunch of times uh, yeah. that is her uh that is her favorite We've really covered some ground today between salmon tossing, the OJ trial, uh, a little bit of music, a little bit of antitrust. Um, head yeah, head, head really, ball coach getting notes yeah. off his windshield. 400, I'm still fascinated yeah. by that. 436 consecutive days yeah. that he, he made some attempt to contact Steve Spurrier. So, Reese, before we depart here, I think we okay. just need to get to the crux of what the state of North Carolina wants to know. <laughs> Why are you jinxing the tar heels? I, I, I don't. I don't you know. Stop. It's uh, stop? it's it's really it, it's become a thing online. It's a preposterous thing, and it's amusing. It's not. Do amusing. you know your record? Not What's am- your record? I, I don't like, know. I was trying to think of it earlier. I can recall the losses. I'm having trouble coming up with the wins, but I think that's mm, just that's a problem. I remember. <laughs> a, I remember a win when they beat Joe Girard when he was at Syracuse. He had a a nice night, not quite as nice as last night, but he had a had a good one. But there was. Um, the only Carolina Duke game I ever called was in the uh, Smith Center, and Duke smacked them. That was Coach K's last year. Um, okay. Then, then of course, there were two later. They could forgive Carol- you for that, I think. I don't think a lot of people think of that game that year. <laughs> um, I called a game where Jaquan Newton threw in like a 45-footer or something on Carolina's senior night and beat them for Miami. Called a, a thrashing at Miami a couple of years ago. Um, the Georgia Tech game last week, Clemson game last night. Um, there was a random, uh, my friend Lauren, uh, Lauren Ritter George, who as fine a production assistant as we've ever had on game day basketball. And for the last, I don't know, eight, 10 years, a Carolina grad has worked at Carolina, uh, reminded me last night afterwards, teasingly, she's joking. She's not one of the people who actually think it's a real thing that she said, oh, and don't forget Marquette. You also called a, <laughs> a middle of the season Marquette game that we lost. And I was like, yeah, okay, oh. I'd forgotten Marquette. So I don't really know. I'm sure there were some good wins, but, um. Hey Reese, uh, what game do you have Tuesday? Uh, I've got North Carolina at Syracuse. A couple of uh, as we, I'll leave you with this. I go back to the hotel in Chapel Hill last night. Uh, it felt like Bill Raftery. I was, hey, sit down and get a bowl of soup, kid. So you know, I <laughs> sit down. I order the gumbo, and these two Carolina guys, older gentlemen, uh, uh, prominent apparently in Carolina booster circles, they came up and they sat down beside me. They were very pleasant, and they said, "We like you a lot, Reese." And we really hope that you don't call any more of our games this year. And uh, I said, well, buckle up Tuesday night in Syracuse, Pally. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I don't know. It's one of, one of those things. But, hey, you know what? Kidding aside, um, I know we do mostly football here. That was a really good performance by Clemson last night. Yes. And yes. They were th- kind of te- – because they were in the top ten early in the year, and all of a sudden yeah. they were teetering a little bit. And yeah. I feel like that's the sort of – we're going to be a top six seed in this upcoming NCAA tournament type win. Yeah, you know? I agree because they've got a stretch coming here. I was talking to Brownell about it now. They're going to be pretty – they're not going to win all of them because it's college basketball and, and 
it's hard to win a bunch of games in a row. But I think it's like the next eight games or something like that, they're going to be by, uh, you know, Ken Palm and BPI and stuff like that. They're going to be pretty significant favorites in their next eight games. So they've got a chance to fatten up that record. They really had a good year. They had a, a bad three-game stretch in which the first Carolina game was in the middle of. They did not play well. They got beat down pretty good three straight times. Then their other three losses in conference play um, – Probably could have played better in the double overtime loss to Georgia Tech. But the other two are basically tough luck. The the tough call at the end of the Duke game, the shot that didn't go in against Virginia, you know, things happen. And so they 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 had a little get back in Chapel Hill last night. So uh, yeah, that's anyway. a heck of a win for them. It was a great that's, win. You know. Great, great, great win. Great win for them. Tough loss for the Heels, but the Heels will be just fine. Yeah, they'll I be, think the Heels will be okay. They'll be just fine. It'll be good. Yeah. As long as they I'm, can survive their their Reese Davis jinx. As long as you long don't call as, tournament games. So I was going to say, as long as I'm not loaned out to CBS uh, Turner to call uh, NCAA tournament games, the heels should be fine. Yeah, I think so too. I think so. so you've been enjoying the hoops. Yeah, it's been fun. It's uh, you've got some you good know, games, man. Yeah, we've I've been very fortunate that the game, even the Duke Louisville game, and Louisville's not very good and really struggling, but they they played really hard and they kept they stayed in the game, you know. So that was good. But the last two have been have been just great. You know, the Georgia Tech court storming, and then last night Clemson uh, winning against Carolina, really entertaining games. And for Tar Heel fans listening that are probably a little sensitive this morning, not great because they lost. Obviously, broadcasters want close games we just want close want close games and storylines and that's what we want so it's it's good if, if anyone thinks you're biased against north carolina there's hours of <laughs> podcast material where you're reading poetry to drake may yeah, no, and and yeah, yeah i saw uh, both on saturday and tuesday i saw luke and i've got so many great great carolina fans got a chance to chat with him briefly um the purple bowl have you have you been to chapel hill in the purple bowl it's no. an acai bowl place, and they've got coffee, oh. and they've got these great, uh, these great little in. energy balls. I love oh these man, acai bowls. go go in had there one this morning. It, next time, next time you go, it's the yeah. best I've ever had. Next wow. time you go to Chapel Hill, go in, uh, tell Paula I sent you, right. and and she's she's phenomenal. What a What's great it called, place! The purple bowl, purple bowl, and I mean right. everybody goes there. And you know what? The the last the first time I ever went, I went with my friend uh, Freddie Kiger, who's a North Carolina historian. He's worked stats at Carolina, you know, forever. And to show that the man has good taste, Freddie takes me there. We're enjoying a nice bowl. Here come Drake May and Sam Howell. Uh-huh. They're regulars there. So see, there you go. That's good. So. One of my best friends from college, Mike Crowley, who's a loyal listener to our podcast, lives right outside Chapel Hill. So we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna he send him there, there for a review. Yep, he, can, he should. Uh, he, can, he should go there. He can take Great. his kids. Yeah, no, that seems like a. Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big bull guy. I Uber Eats and all that stuff when you're on the road now. Like, I don't even like. I just like get a bowl ordered from like a local bowl spot. So that's like a really good thing to know. Like when I go to a town where what the good bowl spot. Yeah. Is. She's yeah. Just, just a tremendous place. Great, great stop on the tour. That was fun, Pete. Uh, thanks for getting Jed fish set up. We're going to have guests throughout the rest of the off season, talk plenty of other things, start turning our attention toward the draft as we get closer and closer uh, to that coming up. Uh, maybe we'll even uh, get a few senior bowl stories that have been left in the back of the notebook someplace, but thanks for listening to the college game day podcast we encourage you to subscribe or download this podcast wherever you prefer to get your podcast see you next time